0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And uh, I kind of feel like we're at halftime in our study of the book of Daniel. We've studied the first six chapters, those are all the stories about Daniel. And uh, we are looking forward to the next six chapters, which is the prophecy of Daniel. And so this is a real clear breaking point uh, in our study of Daniel, just to take a little break. And as I've been just thinking and praying over the last several weeks, the Lord has brought me back to this particular passage in James chapter 3. As I've been considering, in light of some things that have been going on in my life and the life of our church, um, the power of words, the power of Of words, and I think it will be helpful for us just to be stirred up by way of reminder as Peter talks about, uh, not necessarily saying saying anything that you haven't already heard, but uh, we all need to be reminded of what this little thing right here, y'all got one, right, can do, and uh, it's a powerful thing for good or for evil. And so there's no better passage in all of the Word of God to address the subject of the tongue than James chapter 3. And again, a familiar text to um, all of us, I'm sure. But let me just read it to remind you of what it says. We're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verse 1 Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set amongst our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Father we're thankful for your word and how relevant it is to every situation in our lives and I pray that as we uh, go back over this familiar passage this morning that uh, Lord you would convict us and challenge us Lord to guard our tongues what we say what we write because Lord we know you use our words for good and Satan can also use them for bad. And so, Lord, this is a serious subject and I pray that we would listen attentively to your word, that you would speak to us today and you would change us and make us more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin by reading for you uh, just an excerpt from a recent article that I received in the Male. Um, a man that I uh, have grown to respect and appreciate over the years is named Randy Alcorn. He has a ministry called um, Eternal Perspectives Ministry, as a magazine he puts out every so often. And uh, in the latest magazine, there was an article entitled Watching Our Words. Watching Our Words, and subtitle On Social Media. Watching Our Words on Social Media. And I thought of, in light of how Uh, oftentimes people can be vilified uh, through social media, through the internet. Uh, This was particularly uh, um, interesting to me, and so this is what he wrote. The power of the words we speak and write is far greater than we realize. Proverbs 18:21 tells us that life and death is in the power of the tongue. In fact, usually our written words assume more permanence and reach further and wider than our spoken ones. Yet, as I've observed Christians interacting on the internet, including through social media, I'm concerned that many of us are failing to use our words in a way that is honoring to Christ. We're neglecting to remember that these powerful tools many of us are using, whether in blogs, as comments on blogs, on Facebook or Twitter, or as responses to them, can serve either God or Satan, good or evil. God holds us accountable for every word we say, including the careless ones we share over the internet. Jesus said, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken, Matthew twelve thirty six. This means we better think carefully before we hit post or reply. He quotes a, a woman named Jackie Hill Perry who writes, quote, it is not wise or healthy to disassociate what you say on social media from who you are. It seems as if many, including Christians, feel the freedom to be critical, divisive, harsh, and flat-out wicked with speech via social media, as if it is not as damaging. Don't be fooled. You will be judged just as much for what you said with your mouth as you will with what you've typed with your hands. I've seen Bible-believing, Christ-centered people post thoughts on a blog or on a social media only to receive a string of hypercritical responses from people who wield scripture verses like pickaxes, swiftly condemning the slightest hint of a viewpoint they consider suspicious. Others quickly join the fray, and soon it appears that no one is bothered to read what the blogger actually said. Responders assume the worst, not giving the benefit of the doubt and engaging in shotgun-style character assassination. And then Alcorn puts in parentheses, I think maybe the most important statement of this article, he said this, if I were an unbeliever reading such responses, I certainly wouldn't be drawn to the Christian faith. He says, I wonder why it's not immediately recognized by those engaging in such behavior that what they're doing is utterly contrary to the faith they profess and the Bible they believe. How is it that perpetual disdain, suspicion, unkindness, and hostility are seen as taking the spiritual high ground? We dishonor our God and each other when we accuse and delight in our brothers and sisters' alleged errors. Sometimes we must disagree with our brothers, but are we going out of our way to assume the best rather than the worst? Are we laboring to share our opinions in a spirit of love and grace? Romans 14, 19 says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And then again, another parenthetical statement, again, bringing us back to how not only our words affect one another within the body of Christ, but how it affects unbelievers in the world. He says, a world torn apart, torn apart by criticism, suspicion, and hostility will never be one to Christ by a church riddled with the same. Beloved, words have power. And throughout the history of the world, nations have been destroyed. Masses have been swayed. Riots have been incited. Reputations have been ruined. Relationships have been severed. Marriages have ended. Families have been shattered. Churches have been divided, all because of words. It's safe to say that the tongue has caused more damage and destruction than any other force in the world today. We must never underestimate the powerful influence of our tongues. And James understood that. He understood the awesome power of the tongue, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, he penned the most in-depth teaching on the tongue in the Bible, and not just the Bible, in all of literature. He was writing to a group of Jewish Christians who apparently were having difficulty controlling their tongues. And so in these 12 verses, he sought to impress on them the necessity of taming their tongues by exposing six powerful influences of the tongue. In other words, he he shows that the tongue has the power to do six things. It tests our teachers, it measures our maturity, it determines our direction, it ignites our iniquity, it defies our domination, and it highlights our hypocrisy. I hope as we go through these uh, six powerful influences of the tongue that we will all will be encouraged and challenged to consider our words, what we say, what we write, what we type, what we text, what we Twitter, what we post on our Facebook, uh, somehow that's a whole new genre, if you will, that needs to have this passage applied to. And somewhere there's a disconnect, I think, um, in, in all of that, and so I hope you'll see and think and feel Uh, All these things as we go through this text together. But let's look first of all at how the tongue tests our teachers. Notice what it says in verse 1: Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So James began not by focusing so much on the people in the congregation, but on the preacher and on the teachers within the congregation. Why? Because our tongue is our main tool of trade. And, and because we talk a lot, because that's what we do for a living, if you will, uh, there is more opportunity to sin with our mouths. The basic principle is the more you talk, the more chances you'll have to sin. I love Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. Proverbs 10 verse 19 says this, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And In other words, the more you talk, the more likely it is you're going to sin. And so you think, you know, man, I'm just sick of sinning all the time. I wish I would just sin less. Well, can I give you some practical advice? Stop talking so much. Seriously, if you talk less, you would sin less. And so he begins by challenging those of us who are in a role of teaching and preaching um, because that's just what we do. We use our tongues all the time. Second, I think a reason why he addresses the teacher here is because we have much more responsibility for what we say. There's a greater, uh, with with greater responsibility comes greater accountability. And you might think that James was discouraging people from, from becoming a teacher. Not necessarily. He just wanted them to realize what they were getting into before they became one. And it seems like too many people maybe were clamoring for that role of teacher or or preacher. And in those days, you know that rabbis, they were the most honored and respected people in the church. And it would have been very easy for someone to presumptuously pursue the position of a teacher or rabbi so they could enjoy all the perks and all the privileges that went along with being a teacher. The Pharisees would be... Uh, Probably the best example of this, and Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 6, the Pharisees loved the place of honor at banquets, and the chief priests in the synagogues, and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. And so they loved the position, and the perks, and the privileges that came along with being the, the pastor, being the teacher, being the rabbi. I've never forgotten the first sentence of Oswald Sanders' classic book called Spiritual Leadership, a book I read years ago, but he began the entire book on spiritual leadership by quoting Jeremiah 45.5, in which the prophet asked, Are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. In other words, if you picked up this book because you want to be a leader, you want to be a leader and you're thinking great, you're seeking things for yourself. You might as well just put this book down. <laughs> because you're going down the wrong road. You got the wrong motives. And so James wanted his readers to examine the, the purity of their motives for wanting to be a teacher. And so he warned them that God is going to judge teachers much more strictly than he does other Christians. He says, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter. Judgment. Listen, all of us will face the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, we'll be rewarded for our, our works, but those of us who have been teachers and preachers will undergo much closer scrutiny. Why? Because we serve as God's mouthpieces. We have the responsibility to say what God says and all that he says and no more that he says. And so we'll be judged someday by how faithfully we communicated God's word. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling, handling accurately the word of truth. He said, Timothy, you're going to have to stand before God someday and give an account for how faithfully you preached his word. So study hard, be diligent. To make sure you, you're cutting it straight, you're getting it right, you're, you're accurate in what you're preaching and teaching. Not only will we be judged for whether or not we taught the truth, I think we'll also be judged whether or not we lived what we taught, that whether we practiced what we preached. And Ezra has always been a hero of mine. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, he said this, Ezra set his heart or it, says, it, it said about Ezra, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. In other words, it, it, Ezra, who was a scribe, his responsibility was to study and to teach uh, the word of God to the people. And, and it wasn't enough for him just to study and to teach. Sam right in the middle of his study from the time he studied a passage and taught a passage. He was wanting to live it. He was wanting to practice it. He wanted to practice what he preached. And as a teacher, I think God expects us to model the things that we teach. And what we teach and how we live must be kept in perfect balance. Because you could be teaching the right things, but living a wrong life, and the Bible calls you a what? A hypocrite. Or you could be living a right life, but teaching the wrong things, and what does the Bible call you then? You're a heretic, Uh, neither of which you want to be labeled. You never want to be a heretic, and you never want to be a hypocrite. And I think that's what Paul was getting at with Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, when he said, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. In other words, Paul was saying that what we teach people by our words and by our example exerts a powerful influence on not only where they spend eternity, but where we spend eternity. And so, with this verse alone, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, it stands for reason why God holds such a high standard. For teachers, and why we should hold such a high standard for those who teach us the Word of God, those who pastor us, who uh, elder us, and shepherd us, and those who teach Sunday school, and those who serve with our students, and and shepherd students, and disciple students, and those who lead grow groups and Bible studies. Uh, We need to have a high standard for those people because God puts a high standard on those people. And so, how do we test our teachers? How do we know whether or not they should be teaching the Word of God? What comes out of their, what? Mouth. What their tongue says. That's how you know if they line up with the Scriptures. And so we see, first of all, that the tongue tests our teachers. And again, all you need to know whether or not a person is somebody you should be listening to is comparing what comes out of their mouth with what the Bible has said, right? That's how you test a teacher, is to line their... Words up with the scriptures. But secondly, notice James says that our tongues measure our maturity. They measure our maturity. Look at what he says in verse 2 For we all stumble in many ways. Notice that James included himself here. He, he wanted his readers to know that he wasn't perfect in this area either. And it's encouraging to, to know that even this great man of faith struggled with mastering his tongue. He said, we all stumble in many ways. We all sin with our tongues in, in, in a myriad of ways. Our, our tongue is constantly getting us into trouble. Consider some of the, the sins that your tongue regularly commits. Swearing, boasting, bragging, complaining, murmuring, grumbling, grumbling. Lying, exaggerating, gossiping, slandering, flattering, seducing, criticizing, need I go on? All of us struggle with these things. I think it's interesting that even the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is committed by what? part of our body, the tongue. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. It seems like there's no other body part that gets us into more trouble than our tongue. I mean, of all the members of our body, the tongue is one of the greatest instruments of unrighteousness. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, you remember Paul said, This, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members, the members of your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, as we grow in our relationship with God, our goal should be to no longer use the parts of our body for sinful purposes but to train them to be used to honor God. And the tongue is the one body part that that seems to stubbornly resist the sanctification process more than any other. I mean, it's the hardest part of the body to get under control. And that's why James said, if you're able to control your tongue, then controlling the rest of the body is evil. He said that. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. By the way, is there anyone perfect in this room this morning? So what does that mean? That all of us mess up with our mouths from time to time. Because if we didn't, we would be perfect. That word perfect means complete, mature. The same word that was used back in James 1 where he said... uh, to let endurance have its perfect result, so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, that God uses trials to perfect us, to mature us, to grow us. And I think one of the quickest and and surest ways to discern where a person's at spiritually is to listen to what they say. In other words, you, you might think, well, yeah, I feel like I'm pretty spiritually mature. I'm a spiritually mature guy. I'm a, I'm a spiritually mature gal. Well, what comes out of your mouth when you slice your drive into the lake or when that person cuts you off on the freeway or maybe you hit your thumb with the hammer, right? Or something doesn't work out the way you want it to work out. How do you respond? What comes out of your mouth? See, our ability to control our tongue is one of the greatest ways to measure our spiritual maturity. And we're going to see this in a moment that really the tongue is the tattletale of the heart. And and, and the way you really know what's going on in your own heart and in another person's heart is just listen to what comes out of their mouth. I think it's interesting that when we go to the doctor, and we're not feeling good, and so we go to get checked up by the doctor, what does he always tell us to do? Open your mouth and say, ah, and he checks out your tongue. He's got that little thing, puts it in there, right? He's checking. Why? Because you can, you can determine a lot about a person's health by looking at their tongue, And in the same way, spiritually, it's the same way. You can tell a whole lot about a person's spiritual health by looking at their tongue, listening to their words. And so the tongue tests our teachers, it measures our maturity. Thirdly, it determines our direction. It determines our direction. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they're so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts great things. James goes on here to present a series of vivid pictures to, to illustrate the powerful influence of the tongue. A few sections of scripture as, are as graphically relentless as this one. One simile or metaphor after another. Seven uh, examples uh, or, or illustrations to describe the tongue. Uh, you have a horse's bit, uh, a ship's rudder, a raging fire, deadly poison, a wild beast, a flowing flowing fountain, a blossoming tree. These are all illustrations of the tongue, good and bad. Now, the first two illustrations here in the verses I just read show us that even though it is small, the tongue has the ability to direct the course of our entire lives. And the first illustration he presents is that of a bit, a horse's bit. And uh, James was amazed at how this tiny piece of metal can control the direction of a big horse. And uh, hey, we live in horse country here, and some of you have horses, and we've all seen horses, and we know that they're an incredibly powerful animal, that they, they can carry uh, tons of weight without even breaking under the, the burden of that, and um, they can run super fast, fast. Um, Someone has described a horse as a half ton of raw power. And yet, you put a bridle and you put a bit in that horse's mouth, and a child can get them to go in any direction they want them to. He goes on to describe a ship, and James was equally amazed at how a huge ship could be directed by a small. Just a small rudder. And, and ships were big in those days, but they're not as big as they are today. I mean, if you've ever been on a cruise or, or even just driven by the port and seen a cruise ship, it is massive. Huge. Or a, a, an aircraft carrier. If you've looked at some military ships or gone on to check those out before, those are massive. And yet they are controlled by a small rudder. Those ships can turn, right, albeit slowly, but they're turned, they change direction by a small rudder. And so James makes the connection in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. In other words, in the same way, even though the tongue is small, it has enormous influence. One of the greatest lies that has ever been told is that Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Names will never or words will never hurt me. That is a lie. Because many of you have gotten bruises on your body or even broken bones, and guess what? They've healed to the point that you don't even think about them again. You don't even see them. You don't even feel them. But some of us have had our hearts bruised and broken by something that someone said to us in the past And it still hurts every time we think about it. See, what we say affects everyone around us, either positively or negatively. Lives will be built up or torn down by what we say to them. And one word can literally redirect the course of a person's life. I was talking to to somebody this week, and they, they just made a huge decision to go in a different direction from the career that they're in, and they're going in a different direction, and they said, hey, Ken, you remember when you told me two years ago when we talked about this, you said this, and that really stuck with me, And, and that was really the thing that I kept thinking about that helped me make this decision, and I was like, whoa, I don't even remember that conversation, but one word can redirect a marriage, a family, a career, a friendship, many times determined to a large degree by what comes out of our mouths or what doesn't come out of our mouth. There's some marriages in this room today that could be changed or are are in a, 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 a bad place because something hasn't been said. And if something was said, it would change your whole marriage. How about this? I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? See, that sometimes that that is never said in a marriage. And that's why oftentimes marriages fall apart. But that little simple sentence sometimes can put a marriage back together again, it can change the whole direction of your relationship. James's point here is that tiny little slab of muscle and membrane inside your mouth controls the direction of our entire lives. And that's why it's so important that we make sure we control our tongues. And just like a runaway horse or a, a ship off course can cause tremendous damage and cost people their lives, so, are, so can a runaway tongue or a tongue off course. We've all heard the expression, loose lips sink ships. That was a World War II motto. Well, I think we could apply that to today, loose lips sink lives. Just a few pages to the right in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. You're right there in the neighborhood. Check it out. Peter quotes Psalm 34, and he says this, For the one who desires life, To love and see good days, you're like, yeah, that sounds good. I want that. Well, then you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. In other words, if you want things to go well for you, (laughs) then you need to not speak evil and you need to not deceive or lie with your tongue. So our tongue determines our direction. Number four, it ignites our iniquity. It ignites our iniquity. And James went on here to describe the inflammatory nature of our tongues. Notice at the end of verse 5, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And so again, James is looking for vivid illustrations to to show the destructive power of the tongue. And so he likens the tongue to a, a tiny spark that sets an entire forest on fire. We've all seen this, whether it be with our own eyes or at least on the news. Thousands of acres have been burned down and millions of people have been evacuated all because of a carelessly discarded cigarette or a campfire that was not properly extinguished or in some cases, a fire that was deliberately started. And unfortunately, that happens Oftentimes in homes, in businesses, in families, in churches, that there's an arson. There's someone who starts, deliberately, intentionally starts a fire to destroy that family, to destroy that company, to destroy that church. And in the same way, a, a carelessly spoken word can cause unimaginable. An irreparable damage to many lives. This is this is what happens, right? When just like a spark, just like a spark, either whether it's unintentionally started or or intentionally started, right? The tongue, a carelessly spoken word, can cause unimaginable, irreparable damage to many people's lives. The Scriptures uses this analogy over and over again about the tongue being like a fire. In Proverbs 16, verse 27, it says, the words of an evil man are as a scorching fire. It's like, a, like the tongue is like a flamethrower. Some people's tongue is like that, and they're just like, and they're just like torching everybody in their, in their, in their view. How about this? In Proverbs, 20, Proverbs chapter 26, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 18, it says this, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was just joking. In other words, you're like a crazy person that's just like throwing fire at people. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. In other words, the easiest way to make something go away, right, to have a fire go out, is stop putting wood on it. Stop talking about it. Just say, we're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to throw another log in the fire. Every time somebody posts something, right, a a single post online can turn into a bonfire when when everybody comes along and, and keeps commenting and responding, it's like they just bring their block of wood and throw it on the fire. Next thing you know, one little spark and it's, you got a bonfire. You've got a spectacle. Solomon goes on in Proverbs 26. He says, the words of a whisperer, or excuse me, uh, verse 21, like charcoal to hot embers and wood to a fire, so a contentious man to kindle, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Just the whole idea is like whispering secrets like, did you hear about so and so. It's like, ooh, that, that's good. Let me have another piece. That tasted good. Dainty morsels. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he who lays up deceit in his heart In other words, you're not being truthful. You're not being honest. You're saying one thing, right, when you really believe another or think something else. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. And so we see the scriptures describing the tongue like a fire. But notice back in James, James didn't just, he didn't just compare the, the tongue to a fire. He actually called it a fire. It is a fire. The tongue is a fire, verse six. The very world of iniquity. In other words, the focal point or, or the tongue is the focal point of all of our sin. It's the hub of all the evil in the world. Even as you think about maybe Houston being a hub for United, right? What does that mean? All the planes either originate or pass through Houston. In the same way, all the evil in the world originates and passes through the tongue, whether it's pride or anger or bitterness or lust, they all find their expression where? In the tongue. The tongue gives vent to all types of sinful passions and desires. It's like like all the wickedness in the world is wrapped up in a tiny little package that we call the tongue. Paul, back in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 12, as he's... Describing man's depravity, it's interesting, of all the things he could mention about how sinful we are, he chooses our speech as the primary evidence of our fallenness. We're familiar with this passage, there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, there's no one who seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become useless, there is none who does good, there is not even one. The whole idea is we've all sinned, We've we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But then he says this, their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And so what is the best evidence that we're all depraved? Our tongues, what we say. Notice what he, James says back in Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. In other words, our dirty tongues, our dirty mouths, make the rest of our body dirty as well. Did you ever get your mouth washed out with soap? Forget the bar of soap, my mom just poured palm olive in my mouth. She was taking no prisoners. If I said something wrong, man, I'd just like open your mouth and start squeezing the palm olive in there, you know? Point is, if left unchecked, okay, our tongues have the potential to engulf our entire lives in flames. It's as if the wheel, if the wheel, you have a hub of a wheel and you catch that hub on fire, what's going to happen? It's going to spread, right, to the entire, it's going to engulf it and consume that entire tire. And so James was emphasizing here the widespread influence of the tongue. What we say influences everyone and everything else around us. And in the day and age of the internet, what we type on the internet whether it's through our Facebook or our Twitter or our blog or wherever you post stuff or write stuff that goes online, it can influence people all over the world. That's how powerful your tongue is. And when we misuse our tongues, it's like we're spiritual arsons going around starting fires that destroy, everywhere, destroy everyone in our sphere of influence. And notice what he says at the end of verse 6, and this is scary. He says that the tongue is a fire, and it's set on fire by what? Does it say hell in your Bible? He's saying the source of the fire, our tongues, is hell itself. The word there is Gehenna, which was the valley of Hinnom which was located outside the walls of Jerusalem that was a, basically the garbage dump where they would take all their, their, their stuff and burn it, so it was constantly smoldering, and Jesus used it, the, the, the Valley of Gehenna, as a picture of what hell would be like, where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Just think about a, a landfill, nasty. And so he's saying here that, James is saying that the satanic gases of hell perpetually provide fuel to our tongues to keep it aflame. It's like your barbecue grill out in your back patio, right? You've got a tank, you turn that sucker on, and it can be on, but all you need to do is strike a match and right? Well, that's our tongue, right? We've got these, these gases coming, and, and, and boom. One commentator said it this way, I thought very... Convictingly, he said, quote, how appalling the thought should be to the careless talker, the man of unchastened lips, that his words are really Satan's, for which yet he himself is responsible, that his utterances are doing on himself and those around him the devil's work, that when he pours forth from his lips profane or impure or unkind language, he is in truth breathing out flames lighted from the bottomless pit. No wonder James wanted us to learn how to tame our tongues. They're hellish, satanic, otherwise. Having said all that, James points out that our tongues defy our domination. They defy our domination. Look at verse 7, for every species... Of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Again, he's using another illustration to to explain the power of the tongue, and now he likens the tongue to a, a wild beast that has has a deadly poisonous bite. And we know that when God created man, he gave us dominion over all the animals, didn't he? Adam had the power and authority to rule over the animals. And that dominion is demonstrated today by the way that we are capable as human beings of training animals to do just about anything. I mean, you think about it. You ever been to SeaWorld? That's amazing what they can do with those those sea creatures. Like a killer whale. You can like swim around with a killer whale and he can like shoot you off the end of his nose and you can do some flips into the water and dolphins, they get them to wave and they get um, seals to answer questions and they can even teach an otter to have an attitude, you know, and run around and steal stuff. And I mean, it's just cool to see what they can do. But his point is in verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. We've, we've trained all sorts of animals, but we can't tame our tongue. Why? It defies Man's domination. It's like a a ferocious little savage that refuses to be captured and tamed. Uh, When I think about the tongue in this verse, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. I think about the old Looney Tunes cartoon character, the Tasmanian devil. Remember him? He's just like, he's going all over the place, just tearing stuff up. That's our tongue. We have a little Tasmanian devil in our, in our mouths. God had to give us some teeth to act as a cage. Keep that sucker in there. In other words, it's a restless evil. It just, it's like in there, just, just can't wait to say something evil. You just can't wait to gossip. Just can't wait to slander. Just can't wait to say something perverted, to, to tell a dirty joke. He says it's full of deadly poison. Uh, The picture comes to our minds of a snake slithering around and striking people and infecting them with a deadly poison. And it's interesting, again, this is a a common analogy in Scripture uh, for the tongue. Psalm 58, verse 3, those who speak lies have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers. Psalm 140, verse 3, David asks God to rescue him from evil men who sharpen their tongues as a serpent. The poison of a viper is under their lips. Can you imagine the chaos and damage that would occur here in this room if we let loose a bunch of copperheads and water moccasins and just let them go? I mean, can you imagine what would happen? See, our tongues can cause the same kind of chaos and damage in our church. Notice something, though, that's very important here. Verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless, evil, and full of deadly poison. James didn't say that the tongue was untameable. He just says that we can't tame it. You can't tame it. I can't tame it. The tongue is so powerful that it takes supernatural power to tame it. In other words, only God can tame your tongue. Only God can tame my tongue. And that's why we need to cry out to him. Lord, help me. (laughs) Be gracious to me. I I can't even go one day without sinning with my tongue. Whatever it is, it's whether your deal is swearing or cussing or lying or or gossiping or, you know, criticizing people, murmuring, grumbling, complaining. Whatever it is, Lord, beg God, please, God, would you deliver me from this? Something has to change. Something has to happen. And so, because our tongue defies human domination. We must plead for divine domination. Cry out to God to help you tame your tongue. And then finally, James tells us how our tongues highlight our hypocrisy. They highlight our hypocrisy. And he concluded this section, uh, or his teaching on the tongue, by showing the inconsistency of the tongue. Notice verse 9, with it. We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Hey, it shouldn't be this way. Don't don't be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when it comes to your tongue. One minute you're praising God, and the next minute you're cursing people whom God created. And let's face it, let's be honest, this kind of inconsistency, this kind of hypocrisy happens all the time in churches. Have you ever come to church and sung praises and prayed eloquent prayers and then got in the car and on your drive home you went off on your spouse or your kids, you just verbally assaulted them? That tongue, just a few minutes ago, was praising God, and now you're trashing your family. Or have you maybe ever gone to a Bible study and maybe talked real kind and gracious and spiritual, and everyone thought, wow, they're really spiritual, and then you go home and get on the phone, or you go online and you start murdering people's reputations by your gossip and your slander. The Bible has a word for that. It's called double talk. It's called hypocrisy. I'll never forget one of my favorite professors at at seminary went to have lunch with a student at the master's college at the time. He went over to visit with them and they got their food in the cafeteria and they came down and they sat down and had their trays and the student said, do you mind if I pray? And, and so the professor said, absolutely, and so... The student prayed in this very spiritual prayer, thanking God for providing this, this wonderful meal and the food that they were about to eat and said, amen. And the first thing he said when he was done praying, he looked up at the professor and said, hey, I'm really sorry you have to eat this cafeteria food. And the professor said he took his tray and he stood up and he said, I don't eat with hypocrites. And he walked away. I was like, ooh, ouch, that hurts. I'm sure that student will never forget that. But James was doing that. He was confronting this kind of hypocrisy. He said, this isn't right. It shouldn't happen. And he he goes on to, to support his admonition here by appealing to the logical consistency found in nature. Verse 11, he says, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? No, it's either one or the other. Can a fig tree, my brother, and produce olives or a vine produce fig? No. If you're a fig tree, you produce figs. And if you're an olive tree, you produce olives. And so James was comparing the, the natural realm with the spiritual realm. And, and by the way, this was a, a vivid analogy that his own brother, this was, of course, Jesus' half-brother, James. Um, this was the analogy that Jesus used. In Matthew chapter 7, about a tree being known by its fruit, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits." You're like, okay, I I know that. But then the very next verse, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. In other words, not everybody who claims to be a Christian is truly a Christian. And how do you know? Look at the fruit in their lives. Look at Matthew 12 just quickly, we're... There, if you turn with Matthew 7, just turn over to Matthew 12, verse 33, he goes on with this analogy, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for this tree is known by its, but the tree is known by its fruit. It's Matthew 12, verse 33, you brood of vipers, how can you, he's talking to the Pharisees here, being evil, speak what is good, for the, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And here's the verse. You ready? Verse 36. But I tell you, Jesus said, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Again, what we say is an accurate barometer of our spiritual condition. So much so that our judgment, Jesus said, will be based on our words. We will be justified by our words. Not that, not that we'll be saved by what we say or not say, but the genuineness of our faith in Christ will be validated or vindicated, if you will, by our words. In other words, our words are evidence that we will, that, that one day will be used to prove whether or not we're truly saved. What we've said It's, Jesus, it's like Jesus is reading us our rights here. You have the right to remain silent. <laughs> anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of heaven. So it's usually best not to say anything, right? Again, we know that principle, and Jesus just continued to, to, to come back to this with the Pharisees. In Matthew 15, verse 11, Um, Well, verse 17, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hand does not defile the man. In other words, you are what you eat. We know that principle, right? What goes into your mouth determines your physical condition. But Jesus was also saying, You are what you say. What comes out of your mouth reveals your spiritual condition. And true believers are revealed by their speech. And again, Jesus was confronting false believers, these these hypocritical Pharisees. And what was he addressing? He was addressing what kept coming out of their mouths was evidence of what was in their heart. And so nothing highlights hypocrisy in our lives more than our tongue, more than what we say, more than what we write, more than what we type. And so we know the Bible is all about walking the talk, Right? The book of James specifically is about walking the talk. Don't say you're a Christian if you're not willing to live like a Christian. Well, in this particular section, I think James is simply saying you need to talk the walk. And his point is that if you are truly saved, you will have a tame tongue. I don't know how he could have made it any clearer that if Jesus is the Lord of our lives, he will also be the Lord of our lips. Amen? And so, I just want to encourage all of us, myself included, to really meditate on and think about the principles of this passage and how it might affect what you say and what you type and what you text and what you Twitter and what you... Tweet. I don't even know what those things are. You get it. Don't just apply to what actually comes out of your mouth, verbally. But we're so. It seems like so many of us are are so connected to social media, and we've got our phone all the time. We're constantly doing this with our fingers, right? And we're shooting messages, and we're saying this, and we're saying this, and we're responding, and we're posting, and we're hitting respond. And be very careful what you say, because even that text that you sent, that response that you give, that email that you shoot to someone, right? we're going to be held accountable someday for even those things, those things that we don't even think about today in our culture, that is just overrun with social media. And so there's lots of application here. I hope you will take that application uh, question sheet home. If you didn't get one, grab one on your way out. Go over it in your quiet time this week. I'm looking forward to discussing it on Wednesday night with our grow group. Just to really think, how, how do we need to grow? How can we grow? How can we excel still more in how we use our words, whether audibly or in print? Right? Let's pray. Father, we're so convicted this morning because all of us, as this text says, stumble in what we say. From time to time, we all mess up and we say something we shouldn't have said or we don't say something that should have been said. we, we, We email something we shouldn't have emailed or we text something and we didn't even think about what we were actually saying and Lord, the ramifications are humongous, not just for how it affects other people, but ultimately how it'll affects our standing before you, and how it gives evidence of where we're at in our relationship with you, and whether or not we even have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, this is something that uh, all of us um, have much to, to uh, meditate on, much to um, think through, and... Um, I pray that we would take this message, this text, seriously, Lord, that you would really put a guard over our mouths, Lord, and that you would just be gracious to help us, Lord, to be gracious, Lord, to be filled with grace and truth, and if truth needs to be spoken, that it would be done in love, and Lord, that we would never say anything that would tear someone else down, but only... What is good for edification, only that which would build them up and encourage them and help them. Lord, help us to learn to speak like Jesus spoke, we ask in his name. Amen.